Happy 4th of July, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one minute of the greatest space history movie ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm one of your other hosts, Chris Henry of the EA Aviation Museum. Actually, you're the only other host. <laughs> I, I am. I, I guess that's right. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, anyway, we're having a, feeling very patriotic today. I've got the sparklers set up here, and uh, we're in uh, deep in minute eight of uh, of the movie. And uh, Jim and Marilyn are still laying out there, and they're, uh, you know, every time I see those kind of uh, those lounge chairs, I can remember as a kid we used to save up S N H green stamps, and those are the absolutely perfect. S&H Green Stamps Redemption uh, lounge chairs. I think they cost about maybe uh, 15 bucks a piece. Oh, wow. And, uh, many, <laughs> way back in the day when the earth was cooling, uh, we used to get before, long before you'd get uh, shop your way points at you know, Sears or whatever, um, there used to be green stamps and you'd just lick books and books of these stamps <laughs> and get things like fire extinguishers and smoke alarms and and. For some reason, uh, lawn furniture. So um, <laughs> that's amazing. I, I, I've never heard of that. So. I have a I have a feeling that uh, that Marilyn uh, Marilyn Jim probably had a lot of a lot of books from the Piggly Wiggly. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, they're very they're very nice. And uh, we're we're talking about uh, well, actually, let's get into a little bit. We're going to start talking a bit about uh, lunar geography because uh, Marilyn is going to talk about her mountain. And uh, Chris, I think you had a story about Mount Marilyn. I do. So, I mean, you know, I watched the movie and she mentions Mount Marilyn. And I guess in my head, and I know that for space hipsters and people that are really up on space, this is probably a known thing um, that I didn't know, was that I thought that was just something that like, you know, maybe Jim just picked out this random mountain and said, yeah, it's your mountain. And, you know, that that it was just kind of a joke between the two of them, you know. And I had no idea until actually talking to Jim Lovell that uh, not only was that a real mountain, uh, a specific mountain, but it was also the initial point for the descent on the Apollo 11 moon landing mission. Um, never knew that. I did not know that that, was, that played a, a bigger role than I thought in, in our space travel. Yeah, it is, it is a key piece of uh, navigation, at least to, uh, to Tranquility Base, when uh, as the... Uh, as the lunar module would tilt over so that they could get a good view of where they were coming in. That was the P-64 program where they'd go from uh, basically looking up at the sky on their backs and then the the uh, lunar module would pitch forward and then they'd get a good view of where they were coming in. The first major uh, navigation beacon was this big triangular uh, mountain which separates um, – Hang on, I got to think in my brain here. It's uh, <laughs> Serenity Tranquility. It's between the Sea of Tranquility and the Sea of Fertility, um, yeah, down on the uh, western, uh, like the northwestern edge of the Sea of Fertility. There's a there's a range of mountains, and the big triangular one that has a has a little dot in it, like a little uh, like a like a diamond in an engagement ring. This triangle uh, that forms Mount Marilyn, which points directly across uh, the Sea of Tranquility to where. Neil and Buzz would eventually land, and uh, you can still, if you have a good, uh, I, I have a, I have an eight-inch Celestron, and I look at, uh, I look at Mount Marilyn a lot when, uh, in, if you have a good quarter moon, it's uh, very, very easy to pick out um, up there on on the moon. So if you do get a chance, if you know somebody with a a telescope and they know they know their lunar geography, just ask them the point where Mount Marilyn is, and you should be able to get a, a good view of it from a from a home telescope. See, that's awesome. See, I didn't know any of that. I thought it was just something that they had as a joke between the two of them. 
And uh, that that makes the to me that makes the movie and it makes the real thing. I mean, just that much cooler that that actually exists. Well, yeah, and there's there's really a, there's really a mineral in it. It's, yeah. it's, she's she's part she's part of that, and it's just a great a great thing that he would name it after his wife. Um, it's uh, I'm looking just just looking here on the internet. It says that it was informally known as Mount Marilyn until July 26th. When it was official, uh, 19, uh, 2017, when it was officially recognized by the IIU, is, who are the people that, you know, okay, you, you can't name a star, but you can name a mountain on the moon if you get the <laughs> approval of the IIU. That, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, and pretty much where he's saying it, the white area where the shadow crosses, he was looking at the Terminator at the time on, uh, on Apollo 11. So the Terminator would have just been crossing uh, Mount Marilyn uh, on the edge there. The reason that they, that the Terminator was there was because, uh, when you're trying to land on on the moon, you want to have every little bump and crevice uh, highlighted dramatically. So, when uh, Neil and Buzz finally landed on Apollo 11, they came in at dawn over uh, over the landing site because that's when the shadows would be the longest. Um, wow! So that had to be an amazing. Uh, that still had to be an amazing landing. Yeah, I mean to just. To just be looking out the window, I, you know, I keep thinking about looking out the window of a, you know, of a Piper Cherokee or something. But I, <laughs> I could imagine looking out the window and there's the moon. Yeah, and, and it's not, it's not like you can't enter the, like you, on the moon you can't enter the pattern and try to read what the what the runway numbers are. You get you get one <laughs> yeah. shot at this and that's it. So. Yeah, and really, I mean, you know, and there was always like, well, yeah, you could abort, but the abort procedure was incredibly risky. I mean, yeah. you know, it's something that we don't really ever talk much about it. it's just well yeah you can do an abort and it's like but you know there, there was a lot of concern over an abort um so i, I yeah i couldn't yeah. imagine that that's just that's just amazing now you're gonna you're gonna let a a a, a large landing pad the, the the lower stage of the limb fall underneath you as you know you don't know what's gonna you know which direction it's going to be pointing at while you ignite another engine and hope to get out of the way before the the lower section explodes on you (laughs) not a not a fun choice anyway we we get uh we get through i guess this is the kissing part here (laughs) comes up on on there but we uh we cut away to uh the vehicle assembly building or uh vertical assembly building as was first known but that that name didn't last very long as far as i can as far as i can remember and i've looked i've looked in some late 60s books vehicle assembly building has pretty much been the name of the vab uh as long as as long as i've known i mean i remember i remember visiting the vab in 60 68 and it was referred to as the vehicle assembly building jim do you remember your first uh, view of it what did you think when you first saw it i saw it on the horizon and i remember seeing back in Back in 1964, they had uh, in in both Life magazine and National Geographic, it was kind of this gray, featureless brick. And then uh, I'd seen pictures in the newspapers where they were where they were building this thing, and you'd see these tiny little cranes around it with you know piles of sand as they were building and building and building it, and you couldn't quite get the scale. But I remember I remember being in uh, in Titusville in '68, and the VAB came up over the horizon and it stayed there. I mean, it just, it was so big, it took forever for it to change size. And then, you know, I mean, people who have been over 528 on Merritt Island, you still get that feeling today when you see this building. It's, I mean, it's, it's the largest building in Florida and it's one of the largest interior spaces in the world. And it has four, the doors remain, the four doors on it, they're 456 feet high. They are still the largest doors in the world. 
Wow. And um, they take 45 minutes to open. That's how big they are. So, you know, you, you see this thing. When you are taking off from Orlando Airport in the middle of Florida, you can see the vehicle assembly building 40 miles away. So it's, <laughs> you know, it, it's mind-boggling how big the thing is. The, uh, the phrase they always used to use when I was a kid was, if you open the doors, you could slide four United Nations buildings inside and still have room on the roof. Oh, uh, you know, it's just it, it's just hard to hard to grapple with. Have you ever been inside the VAB, Chris? I don't know if you've. I did. I did, I did a tour back in two thousand. Oh boy, about two thousand four, five ish, and um, we did a tour of, of Kennedy Space Center, and the VAB was included, and we got the. We got to go up to. You didn't get, we didn't get to go all through it. We got to go up to the doorway. Oh, okay. And but that was that was insane. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. I, you're just like, oh my god. You know, the doors uh, the doors weren't open. You got to look in, um, but it was it was incredible. I mean that. Yeah. You know, it, it's it, and oddly patriotic. I mean, when you see that building, um, you know, you know what's being done in there. Oh and, yeah, and and it's got and now it's got the big flags drawn on the side, so yeah, it's like it about yeah. as America as it gets. It is. I think it had the flag on it when I saw it. I think I'd have to go back and look at my pictures, but yeah. Oh, uh, one of my favorite um, the uh, the patter that the uh, the tour bus guides use when when they point out the uh, the flag, they say that if you look at the stripes, uh, the the tour bus that you're on, the big Greyhound tour bus that you're on would fit inside one stripe. Oh, gosh. Uh, you know, like it's narrow. The, the bus is narrower than one stripe on the on the. Wow. Just, but, yeah, even when you're close to it, it's, it's hard to get the scale wrapped in your head. Oh, yeah. And I remember when I was there, one, outside in the parking lot or nearby, one of the crawlers were parked. Oh, yeah. Um, and that was kind of – that was an odd geek-out moment, too, when I saw that. And I didn't realize I was looking at it first. And then it kind of dawned on me that, oh, my gosh, that's one of the crawlers, you know. Yeah. Cool. I wanted to go take it for a ride. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like the the zero stage of the Saturn V. You know, it's the first motion. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, it just and looking at when you look at the treads, every one of those treads is you know it's it's as wide as a car, and they're all strapped <laughs> together, and and it's just it's it is it's just I mean I, I keep using the phrase mind boggling, but it really just scrambles your head when you're looking at this stuff. Yeah, you um, think you know how big it is by watching like movies and TV stuff, but. Um, until you're there up next to it, and you realize that, like, oh my gosh, you know that it is it is just massive. If yeah, if you ever had the chance to check out, you know, really any of the space centers, whether but but Kennedy is awesome because of the VAB and things like that. But um, any of the science museums in your area um, that have something like that, uh, please go do it because it's not time wasted. Yeah, yeah. I, one of the other uh, when I was a kid, I remember they were describing if if you looked up in the high bay that that's the big. There's like the there's a little there there's the low bay which is that side thing that sticks out toward where the orbiters were being processed nowadays. But um, in the high bay, they had four 325 ton cranes hanging off the ceiling, <laughs> and each one of those cranes, the way they described it was, they could hold ten locomotives off the floor, and the they, the locomotives would not touch the floor if you took ten stand and like oh they gosh. could each pick up like if you just hook them all together if if the couplers didn't break you could pick up ten locomotives with each crane oh my gosh and <laughs> you know and 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 it could pick it up that, that's uh you know four hundred and fifty feet to the ceiling so you're forty five you know it's, it's like forty <laughs> stories up and it could pick that that up and wow. what they said was the the way they were describing the uh, if you could you could uh, adjust the uh, uh, 
the the drop the the the, the ball at the bottom of it. You could drop the boom uh, light enough. You could you could lower it so that it could sit on top of an egg, a chicken egg, without cracking it. Like that that's how precise. The wow. motion was it was like sixteenths of a of an inch. So brute force and precision—that's that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, and it's still going there. It's still—I mean, they're working on the SLS now, but it's still providing this uh, this massive achievement in engineering. That's that's an active building. When I was uh, the only thing I have to compare it to that was like in my area growing up. Um, grown, I grew up in Pittsburgh and uh, just north of Pittsburgh, and I flew out of a place called Beaver County Airport. And uh, when you had to do your cross countries, you'd go out to uh, Akron Akron Airport, and they had the air dock out there where they built the Goodyear blimps. Oh right, yeah. And um, when you would land out, there, I mean, it was same. It, it's nowhere near as big as the VAB, but it's it's this monstrous building. Uh, if you just Google, uh, you know, the the Akron Ohio air docks, you'll see these massive black hangar, and uh, it was the same thing. You'd see it out on the horizon. It was it was perfect for a student to do a cross country do because you can see it forever and cheat and just <laughs> you know, yeah, know just that aim at it. Yeah. There's the airport over there <laughs> where that, where this gargantuan hangar is sticking out on the horizon. But uh, but that's the only thing I have to compare it to in my area growing up. But, yeah, uh, I, I grew I grew up not too far from uh, Lakehurst, New Jersey, and they still have the Navy. Uh, you know the the dirigible um, hangar, and it it is like that. I mean, you just you just look at it, you go, how is it that big? Why doesn't it? How does it not fall down? It's just yeah. like a big. Yeah, uh, I got but, I got to tour it one time uh, out there, and they said that uh, I don't know if the VAB does this, but the Goodyear blimp hangar did. It had its own weather in there. Yeah, and yeah. it would actually rain. You know, and stuff. Yeah, they, they 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 said that they have to keep the they have to keep the air handlers going twenty four seven, or Jeez. it would you know clouds would form. Yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. So, uh, just wild, but yeah, if, uh, strong recommendation if you're if you're in Florida, get to the Kennedy Space Center because it's well worth the trip. It's just you will not see this anywhere else in the world. So get get out there it's uh we're here at uh what's supposed to be uh, a rollout of, well this would be an initial rollout of apollo 13 we're watching them putting together apollo 13 and apollo 13 had kind of a torch the, the apollo 13 we're talking about here is the uh alan shepherd apollo 13 this was kind of a there was kind of a traffic jam going on in the vab during most of 1969 i was there for uh, apollo 10 and uh, Apollo 10, of course, fit right between Apollo 9 and Apollo 11, and they were building all these all these Saturn V, stacking them up left and right, and they were kind of running out of room. And uh, they had, you know, if you look at Pad 39, they have Pad uh, 39A, B, and C. They never they never built C, but they they figured the day would come that they would have just too many things going on. And um, with Apollo 10, uh, they actually had run out of. They they usually they kept doing things on pad 39a but with apollo 10 being so tight in the in the mix of getting getting things to the moon they built apollo 9 launched it from uh, pad 39a and then immediately rolled out apollo 10 out on pad 39b that was the first one to ever leave 39b when they got apollo 10 launched then they could move that was in uh, bay number 2 and bay number 3 they had uh, apollo 11 getting put together so then they moved apollo 11 out to uh to 39a and apollo 12 was going to come out and they didn't know whether or not they were going to have to put apollo 12 on 39b because they had apollo 13 coming up so anyway they they managed to to hold off until uh november i think yeah november of uh no it was earlier than that um anyway apollo when apollo 12 went off in the fall of uh, 69 they had kind of cleared up the dock a bit but the the thing was is that they uh 
they still were building uh, parts of Apollo 13 where Apollo 10 had been. So uh, what they had to do was they had to run they had to, they had to run the bottom part of Apollo 13 around the other side of the VAB. So they they put a uh, they have like a, a boilerplate that they could fit. It was a it was half of an S4B, the top half of an S4B, a service module and a command module, and they kind of dropped it on top of the uh, the husk of the first and second stages of, of Apollo 13, rolled it around out on the uh, the gravel way, it rolled it around the side of uh, the VAB and then brought it back in so they could put the real uh, S4B and the uh, command and service modules on top of that. So what we're seeing here at the end of October is this um, it's a, Apollo 13 uh, backing out of one driveway and going into another driveway uh, so that they can uh, they can put the rest of the real Apollo 13 together. And uh, the, as far as I can tell, the dates are pretty accurate on this. The Apollo, I'm sorry, the Apollo 12, the rollout was September 8th. And then December 16th, they'd fi- they finally finished up putting Apollo 13 together on December 16th. So this is about pretty accurate on the timeline of where everything was. Apollo 13, Apollo 12 had gone to the moon and Apollo 13, they had just kind of moved around on the outside of the building. But it's just kind of weird thinking about having a, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't exactly move it from one spot to the other because it was in the wrong it's kind of an h shape so they had to move it from one side of the h to the other side and the only way to do that was to take it outside um playing uh you know yeah musical 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 saturn chairs five. with saturn V rockets yeah <laughs> yeah just must have been it must have been something to see at the time i uh i remember seeing uh, apollo 11 in the high bay uh while apollo 10 was out on the pad and it just was incredible. I mean, you, you know, it's like the only thing I had, I had seen Ravel models, <laughs> but this is the first time it was up close and it was so up. You could not see the top and it sounds very kind of weird because you're right there, but you're so close. You couldn't see to the top of the, uh, of the rocket. You wow. just saw the bottom, you know, maybe a third of it. Uh, it was just, Oh, that's wild. And, uh, yeah. And it was all, and it was all ready to go to the moon. Yeah. Just, uh, quite a, quite a time. And we'll see it again sometime soon, I'm sure. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully soon. I'm trying to think what else I was going to say about that. I mean, they talk about Jim Lovell is saying the astronaut is the most visible member of a very large team. And that's true. There were, you know, hundreds, this is not an exaggeration to say hundreds of thousands of people worked to get Apollo to the moon. Yeah, we focus on the, the guys in the in the crew cabin, but there's so many from the from the people that make the gloves on the space on the on the space suits to uh, the guys that prime the uh, launch escape system, to the guys that are working in radar uh, radar domes down in uh, Eleuthera Island in the, in the Bahamas waiting for the ship to take off so they can track it. It was, it was a worldwide event with, uh, with tens and hundreds of thousands of people working on all the individual parts just to get to this one spot. And it all had to work right or, you know, it, it would be a disaster. Was, that's what always amazed me of is, you know, of course we, you know, we talk about our astronauts and our flight directors and mission control specialists, and rightly so because those guys are amazing. But there were just so many people. Even when you start getting into the production of parts and equipment, and you know, everybody. I mean, it was almost to the effort of like like how we fought World War Two on the home front. Uh, you know that everybody. Uh, that was involved in any of these areas played a role in the space program. I mean, there's oh. so many people. Yeah, and and every you know, it, it, I mean, I think the smartest thing that was ever done in NASA was 
separating it out to different groups, different companies all across the country. So from a congressional standpoint, uh, it was well-funded because this meant so many different jobs, so many different people, so many different places had stakes in this. And exactly. every, everywhere you go, I mean, I know, Chris, you are a, a museum junkie like I am. Uh, every every time you go to a different museum in a different part of the country, you'll see something that was made that was done in support of uh, the moon landing. I mean, if you go to the Cradle of Aviation uh, Museum, which is great, by the way, up in Long Island. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. There's so much of the Grumman works there that you can see how they put things together. You can watch movies about how things were constructed. Every little tool that was made so that they could, you know, when they when they built the lunar module, it was built for lunar gravity, not Earth gravity. So a lot of it couldn't support itself in an Earth, you know, in an Earth environment. So they built stands and things to hold it so that it wouldn't get crushed by Earth gravity. And, you know, little things that you wouldn't think of like that, but it's it's out there. And, uh, you know, you can see these things in museums scattered across across the country. And, well, and the people that were working on those systems were so proud yeah, because they they knew where their work was going. And the people I've talked to that, you know, they could have done something like manufactured the screws for, you know, something, some panel. But to them, hey, they were part, they were building something that was going to space. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, they're, they're still very proud of that. Yeah. Uh, there's a... Um... Our our youngest uh, uh, daughter is up in uh, North Adams, Massachusetts, and she works in a in an art museum that used to be owned by Sprague Electronics. And Sprague was uh, they built capacitors. They made all different kinds of electrolytic capacitors, all kinds of things, and they built uh, navigation systems or navigation electronics for Gemini. And they still have, even though Sprague is no longer a, a company, um, they still have uh, a small museum there. And one of the one of their proudest uh, items is a large flag with uh, a Gemini spacecraft on it. And it's signed by everybody that worked there. Uh, And it was just, they they got it for their participation. It was from NASA for their participation in project Gemini and that people would sign their name to it saying, I want to be a part of this. I'm, you know, my work, even though I'm, I'm sitting here putting together capacitors all day, my work is putting people into orbit and keeping them alive. So, you know, it almost had a World War II feel about it. I mean, there was this uh, sense of national pride, but a sense of personal investment in what was going on with what you were building. Your machine had a had a bit of a soul to it. Absolutely. Yeah, and, absolutely. I completely agree with that. Yeah. But anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> that's where we are at the moment with uh, with the be- with just the beginning of talking about the assembly portion of uh, of Saturn V. We're, we're going to be talking a lot more about that in the next couple of days as we, as we watch them moving heavy objects around. <laughs> so... <laughs> So uh, let's let's pick that up uh, right now, and uh, so everybody else can enjoy their their holiday today. Um, but if you would like to join us and listen to previous episodes, if you've missed any, this would be a perfect time to pick up. You're driving home from your uh, fireworks displays. It's, go listen to the uh, the previous seven episodes. We are always available. Apollo13minute.com. You can find us on iTunes or on Google Play. You just look for Apollo 13 Minute and click subscribe. You can get it delivered hot and fresh every evening. Uh, you can also find us, uh, we are talking with everybody on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute. You can find us on Facebook at the Apollo 13 Minute Mission Control, where uh, everybody gets together and says what we're doing wrong. Or, you know, <laughs> you, can, you can do that or we can, you know, we can appreciate your kudos as well. So, uh, but yeah, join us out there. Uh, we will return tomorrow with a very special guest. And uh, you'll have to tune in to find out who that is. <laughs> uh, check us out here tomorrow on the Apollo 13 Minute. Uh, Lost a signal in 30 seconds. See you tomorrow. Have a great evening.